Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Laura McGuire. She is a nationally recognized sexuality educator, trauma-informed specialist, and inclusion consultant. We'll find out what more that uh, means later on. The book we're going to be talking to Laura today about is a groundbreaking book that you all are going to want to read and you want to hear all of this interview. The book is called Creating Cultures of Consent. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy you are here. Laura, let's begin by having you tell some of your story. How did you go from being a Catholic, evangelical-raised young woman with a most interesting uh, background to writing a book called A Culture, Creating Cultures of Consent? Take us back and start us out a bit. Yeah, well, right. Our origin stories are always <laughs> one of the most interesting things I think about all people. So yes, I I was raised both Baptist, evangelical, um, a little bit of Methodist in there too, and then Catholic. So a lot of people will say, oh yeah, you know, I was raised Catholic or I was raised Baptist, but I got both. I got, I got a double whammy. So it was an interesting upbringing, right? Because I got a lot of messages about consent, you could say, and about sexuality, but they were not the kind of messages that, you know, we're promoting now, or certainly that I would be promoting in my work, in my book. But the messages were still there, right? They were just not helpful. A lot of them were based on concepts such as victim blaming, a lot of shame-based narratives, And those really created this foundation of, I want to find something different, right? At the same time, though, there were good things about that upbringing. And one of the good things was that for many years, I was preparing to become a nun. And really at the heart of that vocation was this desire to be in service of humanity, 24-7-365. And I very much feel that currently what I do is in that vein, right? I go around the world and talk to people and change norms and get people to think about tough topics like this in an approachable and engaging way. And so all of that, you know, on one hand, kind of pushed me in the opposite direction to say, what is the alternative to the negative parts of this? And I want to create a career around that. And then the other side was the good pieces did help me to formulate, I, you know, I really want to make this my full-time life and job and existence. And I'm so fortunate to be able to do that. Well, what you talk about in the very beginning of the book about your story is uh, going to the swimming pool. And I want you to talk to us about the, uh, the bathing suit and what you had to wear over the bathing suit and why, why you were told that you needed to do that. Yes. So as many, many people will relate, you know, um, this was the 1990s. And even today, there's still a lot of spaces where they will talk about, and again, this is in faith-based kind of youth spaces, right? But they'll talk about uh, protecting 
other people in the community from sinning. And they'll say that, particularly for young women, people assigned female at birth, that they need to cover up certain parts of their body because it's often said that uh, young boys, young men, that God designed them to have this natural lust that they can't really control. And so to help them not go to hell, we have to make sure that we are not enticing them to think lustful thoughts or to act on them. So when I was in that world, they would sometimes have a beach day or a pool party, and they would tell the girls, and only the girls, (laughs) that they could wear a bathing suit, but if they were going to, and it wasn't you know, what's called like a modest bathing suit that would cover from knees to shoulders, that they would have to wear a shirt over it. Um, Even if it was a one piece still, that was too much showing. It was too tight. So they would need to wear like an extra large t-shirt over it that would cover up everything. And they'd say, you know, you can still swim in that, um, but you won't cause your brothers to stumble and fall. So it's, it's the boys, it's the boys who are going to get excited, but there's no recognition of female sexuality and female lust whatsoever. I can see you're, you're shaking your head no. There is no recognition of that. Th- what you're talking about, putting on a shirt over a one-piece bathing suit that goes from the knees to the shoulders, sounds to me like one step this side of a burqa that the, that the Arabs wear. Well, so I mean, uh, let, me, let me clarify a little bit. So like a one-piece bathing suit, if it didn't cover from knees to shoulders, they would ask that you wear the T-shirt. There are bathing suits in those communities that do cover more, and sometimes then they don't have to wear something on top of it. Um, and and it's important to say, equally important to say, if that is someone's choice, if that's what makes them feel comfortable, then there's nothing wrong with that, right? If someone wants to wear a bathing suit that covers from their wrists to their ankles, that's great. But what's wrong with it is when exactly it's framed in a way of shaming people, um, saying that you're responsible for someone else's thoughts or actions um, and that your body is inherently going to cause them to do something negative or violent. Yeah, well, right. So that would do respect, Laura, to say that a young girl wants to wear such a bathing suit. I mean, we're not born wanting to cover up. You know, we're born naked and we do cover up. So I don't really know how much choice these young women have in terms of wanting to wear that kind of suit, particularly in a world where if they go to the movies at all or they see television at all, they're going to see women prancing around in bikinis and 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 all over the place. So they can't help but be influenced. But let's leave that and let's move on now to the history of consent, because your book is about consent, and that's what we've got to get into. Tell us some about the history of consent. Yes. So there's definitely a really important history there. And we can look at it from two perspectives. We can look at it globally, right? And we can say around the world, we have cultures that anthropologists have designated as what's called rape-free. And that means that they do not have a culture that has really uh, an expectation, um, an assumption that sexual violence is just part of the human experience or that it's just going to be part of a community. 
and they don't have that in their history, which is really fascinating. So that's kind of one perspective we look at it. But then looking at it from- Wait, wait before we go on. So you're saying there are cultures on the planet where people do not get raped. Right. And those cultures also don't have um, rates of domestic violence either. So there's not a lot of interpersonal, intimate, romantically linked violence, right? So that's just something that doesn't exist. And this is really exciting because some evolutionary biologists have said that it is part of human nature. They've said if people are going to have these desires, then sometimes they're going to violently act on them. And that's just the way people are. But these communities, these indigenous communities have proven that that is wrong. I see. In the United States, I think we have something like 36,000 rapes every single day. I've seen that figure. Right. There's a lot of figures like that, that, yeah, this is a huge problem. One out of three women in the United States have been sexually abused at some time in their lives. You've seen that statistic? Yes. Yes. And for boys, it's one in six. It's not that far apart. Oh, that's an interesting number, too. So how do kids learn about consent? So that is right. That's the ultimate question, because when parents are seeing these things going on in the world, and like you said, you know, having children yourself, you you start thinking about this stuff. How do I prevent this? How do I address this? And I think for so many parents, they just don't know where to start. And you start with talking about communication, right? The way we teach our children to say please and thank you We, at that same kind of time of life, we want to start talking about consent, about if someone's saying no, how do we know that maybe they're not even saying no, but they're uncomfortable, and that in either of those scenarios, that's a stop, right? We don't try to convince them. We don't try to manipulate them. We honor their discomfort, or especially if they're actually saying no to something, And then we also want to start teaching them about enthusiastic consent, right? And saying yes to things and speaking up about what we do want and honoring that in any kind of interpersonal connection, right? So far, far before this gets into the realm of dating or sexuality, it's in every part of interpersonal communication. And who who, who teaches this uh, consent? Parents? School? How do, how, do, how do we convey the information, Laura? Yes. So in an ideal scenario, and, and that's why the book says for parents and educators, right, is they're working together. So parents are talking and modeling these things at home. And in the book, right, I break down some examples. of What does that look like? How would you model this? And then the kids go to school, hopefully, and they're hearing the same messages, So then they're getting more lessons on it. And throughout their life, they're having this as part of conversations about, again, interpersonal skills, emotional intelligence, communication. Then it comes into health class when they start talking about sex and dating. And so ideally, it's in all those spaces and also including, because we talked about faith communities up front, right? Churches, synagogues, temples, et cetera, should also be having this as part of their youth education. And well, if the parents are teaching about consent and the schools are teaching about consent, what is taught in the curriculum? How how is that decided? Uh, Let me give you an example. Some people, a couple that I'm working with have two children 
and the children are in school. And, and so now the, they, the parents got invited to a discussion about uh, sex education and what's going to be taught. And the, the, the couple that I know tell me that many of the parents in the room were very uptight about the, the mere thought that their children are going to be given sex education. And then when they got into some things like consent and so on, the parents like were, it was, uh, it was not a very pleasant scene. It was very awkward. And how, how does one deal with and who creates the curriculum for this? Yes. Excellent question. So a lot of the parents will have those fears and very valid concerns because they didn't get this kind of education growing up. Right. So they're like, I don't know what my kid's going to learn because I don't know it. That's really scary for me. So in the book, one of the things I suggest is starting with the parents, right? Having sessions where they can come and learn the curriculum, like they can view it. They can talk to the teachers about it. They can ask questions and the teachers can give them an overview of here's the kind of consent culture we're trying to create. This is what it would look like. And one, that butts a lot of the myths that they might have. But two, for a lot of them, that will be the first time they really hear these messages. And that's so important. Um, and then if you can get the parents on board, you're much more likely to get the school, the school district, um, all of those folks to, you know, really say, yeah, this is important. This is integral to Again, any age to have this understanding. And then as they get older, they learn more and more. But teaching the parents first, making sure they're safe in understanding it and asking those questions is really that foundational piece. You can't move forward without that. You know, maybe we jump too far into the future and we need to go back just a bit. Give us a basic definition of what consent means. What does that mean when you say consent? between two people or one or more people? So consent is an enthusiastic and informed ongoing verbal and nonverbal agreement to anything. So this means that if I am going to take on a project at work, I need to know what I'm getting into and I need to enthusiastically agree to it or not, not just say yes, because I have that pressure on me or yes, without knowing what I'm agreeing to, because I'm just supposed to say yes. Right. Um, it means that when people are dating before they ever have any physical contact, they are enthusiastically agreeing to text each other or call each other. You know, we see a lot of cases of harassment where that wasn't in place and that becomes a consent issue. Much less, again, when people are actually going to have an intimate relationship making sure that each part of that is agreed to and understood and that people know that just because something is a yes at one time doesn't mean it is moving forward, that that can be rescinded at any time and continue to be discussed and negotiated. In your book, you talk about how a, a significant percentage of females in this country are taught, taught courting behavior and that when the man moves forward, they sort of move away a little bit. They don't immediately jump into sexual intimacy by any means, which is you know, a kind of standard. And they play, you could call it play, or they act like, you know, somewhat hard to get. They're, you know, sort of keeping things moving sort of slowly. And given that, and you're shaking your head, yes, that, that I've, I'm quoting you accurately. And 
given that that's how the women are trained to be, you know, slow and 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 move the whole thing slowly, be not just jump right into bed with the boys. Um, but the boys also know that the women are trained to do that. So when the woman is moving away or saying slow down and so on, and so on, how is the boy to know that that simply isn't just part of what she does, but it's all part of the game. And I'm supposed to move forward even more now that she's moving away in order to make believe I'm convincing her to do something that I know she really wants to do as much as I do. You know, this question, we, we call it in the social sciences and psychology, we call this token resistance and token compliance, right? Those are the fancy oh, words good. for that. <laughs> and so token resistance is exactly what you just mentioned, right? So for people who are socialized as female, this expectation of I can't say yes, or I'll be said, you know, negative things about me. My partner will say, oh, you're too eager. They'll use um, negative terms for me, like a slut or a whore, right? The, like really powerful insults for people assigned female at birth. And, and so I have to make sure I don't appear that way. I have to make sure I'm kind of like resident or like pulling back or like, I don't know, convince me, right? Even if inside they're like, yes, I really want to do this. Now, it's also equally important to note that token compliance is the other side of that, which is I have to say yes or I'll be put down, ostracized, et cetera. And, and people socialized as male most often receive that, right? Boys, if they are dating a, a girl and they say, I don't know, I, you know, I'm not really ready yet. Can we slow things down? The girl's like, what's wrong with you? Are you not attracted to me? Who are you attracted to? You're weird. You're Right. So everybody gets this and it's really toxic and it's really awful and unhelpful and creates rape culture, which is the opposite of consent culture. So what do you do? <laughs> well, number one, yes, when we are, are training, particularly young men who might say, oh, yeah, well, how do I know if the girl's just playing hard to get? You say, if there's any question, if this person's saying no in any way or like maybe question mark in any way, that's a no. And you have to say, based on what you're saying, based on what you're showing me with your body language, et cetera, um, I, I'm not going to move forward because I need to know you enthusiastically want to do this. And I'm not going to shame you for that. But I, I need to know that because if it's any kind of a gray area, if I'm not 100% sure you're saying, yes, I definitely want this 100%, I'm, it's a no for me, right? And that changes that narrative because then the per person can say, no, I really am saying I am unsure. I really am saying no right now. And they say, that's okay. You're safe to say that with me. Or they say, thank you for saying that because there are things I want to do with you, but I have these cultural messages. I have the, these real fears, right? So here's how we can have more authentic communication. So it really is about, you know, honoring any no, any question mark as a stop, but then making sure that you're switching the paradigm to have communication be more honest. So here's a question from my clinical practice. Uh, a young man says to me that he's engaged uh, in court he's with a young woman and courting and they're making out and, uh, you know, he starts to uh, pull open his shirt and then he starts to unbutton her blouse and then she says no and he stops immediately and she says, why are you stopping? And he says, 
because you said no. And she says, well, but sometimes no means yes. And, and he's like, well, is it no or is it yes? And she's saying, well, no, but yes. And he comes to me and he says, I don't know what to do with such a situation. I mean, she's telling me that no means yes. And you've been teaching me that if I get a no, it's no. You don't fool around with a no. You just leave it as a no. And that's the end of it. And so have you come across such, it seems to tie in with what you're talking about in your book about the way women are trained to sort of give a no in the beginning. And then this person seems to be sliding right over into the yes very quickly. Very confusing for a young man who wants to be respectful. Absolutely. Right. And we, yes, we see this, especially generationally. I will say the teens and young adults I work with now don't have this as much because they've started to make consent culture more of a norm, but certainly generations past, huge problem. Right. But also it's geographical. I will say, um, like I, I was born in Tennessee. I, I still live in the deep South. There are pockets where there's still that, yeah, token resistance, right? I have to perform resistance in order to be accepted or seen as a good person, et cetera. So, I mean, if I if I was talking to that that client of yours, I would say, you know, you're absolutely, you're doing the right thing, right? You're stopping when there's any kind of a no, even if this person says, well, it's complicated. You have to sit down and say, I can't function that way. Uh-huh. Right. I don't I know maybe we've seen this in movies. We see this in a song or on TV, but it's actually it's not good. And we have to change the way that we communicate about this stuff. If you're saying no or if you're pulling back at all, I don't want to I don't want to play around with that. Right. That's just not OK. And so I need you to be very clear. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? What do you feel comfortable with? Tell me. Say yes. Again, I think the biggest thing is to affirm to his partner, there's not going to be any shaming that comes along with this, right? I'm not going to go back to my friends and say, oh yeah, I had a date with her and she was like, yes, I can't wait to do this with you. And we're all going to laugh about it and call you names, right? Because that's that's the root fear there. And again, that's very culturally conditioned. That's very real. So that's how I would counsel him is he has to change that narrative. And I think particularly for boys and men who have different power in our society, they ha- they're, they're such an important piece of taking the lead in that, right? And saying, I believe in consent culture. I'm going to require an enthusiastic yes. I'm not going to exist in any gray area with this. In your book, you talk about a concept called the continuum of harm. Tell us about the continuum of harm. Yes. So the continuum of harm is a term, it's a concept of how how do we get to the point where we see things in the news? Like I know you mentioned um, before we got on here about what's going on with the Southern Baptist um, Coalition and reports of decades of horrible, horrible abuse, right? And people see that and they say, how on earth did a group of faith leaders in a conservative denomination get to the point where they were condoning, covering up, excusing sexual assault. 700 700 cases are reported over 20 years by the leaders of the church. Exactly. 
So when we get to the point that that's in the news, that's the headline, we have to realize there was a continuum of behaviors that happened before that laid a foundation that allowed this to come to this point, right? So the continuum of harm says before we ever get to a point where someone's actually physically assaulting someone, we have to stop things and address things before we're, we're that far along, right? We imagine it like a pathway or you can imagine it like a pyramid, like you're building something on top of something and kind of there's this top pinnacle point, which is like the worst case. But think about that whole wide foundation that was built first. So those are comments, jokes, um, blackmail, right? Um, we now have things like revenge porn, right? Someone sends a picture or a video of someone, they're like, I'm going to blackmail you with this. I'm going to use this against you. I'm going to manipulate you. I'm going to have maybe extortion. I'm going to ask for money from you, et cetera. Um, but again, even before that, it's friends making jokes about someone's sexual history or putting them down saying, oh, what are they? They're gay, right? Homophobia is at a root of, of this continuum too. And if we are able to actually stop it there and say, hey, not funny. Wait a minute. No, that's not okay. Right. Or again, even like, hey, you're texting this person and they, they're not responding. I think they actually told you like, please stop texting me or like, I don't want to keep talking and you keep bothering them. Like, stop enough. Right. When that becomes the culture, then those those behaviors don't escalate. We don't get to a place where predators can prey on people and the people around them are going to excuse it or protect them. So, and even that example you just gave, right? When couples, when young people start saying, yeah, no, yes, no, maybe clear yeses, enthusiastic yeses, clear communication, um, that's how you prevent things from becoming what we're seeing in the news. So what you're saying is in this continuum of harm that there are all these variables, little comments, little pictures, little this, little that, all having to do with aggression, with going ahead without getting a firm yes from the other person. And when we look at a myriad of, the, of all these, these variables, they're all building this foundation towards making sexual abuse acceptable. Well, within that context, then, what did it say to the young people in the United States when they heard a tape of a presidential candidate, Trump, saying to a reporter, I can grab women by the pussy and they can't do anything about it because I'm a celebrity. What effect did that have on the, on the young people of the country? Well, I will tell you a quick story. Um, I was working at a university in Texas <clears throat> at the time of that presidential election. And, you know, it was a few months after that had come out. And I was working on a project um, where we had created a consent education curriculum specifically for international students, because a lot of them um, were still taking their TEFL, which is like their co English competency exam, right? So we made sure all the curriculum was translated into multiple languages. And we were talking about cultural differences and what our expectations were here. And the day after that election, because of that tape, <clears throat> I walked into a class for that group and a lot of young men from around the globe were like, okay, you're telling us <laughs> 
here in the United States, you believe in consent and we can't do this and that without asking and without making sure the person's comfortable and on and on and on. But look who you just selected. There's no way we're really going to buy into this now. So that is the impact, right? It's not even just U.S. citizens. It's the globe looks at us and says, you don't care about consent. You support people who are sexual predators. I mean, that is a sexually predatory statement. Even if it was only a joke and he never acted on it, that is a predatory statement. It's not funny. And so then again, it becomes part of culture, part of expectation, and it even leaks into our legal system, right? We see this with sometimes judges or attorneys or police officers who then are less likely to believe someone's a victim or they tell them it wasn't that big of a deal, they've seen worse, et cetera, et cetera, because all of these subconscious messages seep into the very back part of our brain and become the way that we view all situations that we're faced with. And so the detrimental effect is massive and long-lasting. You say in your book that in addition to what we're seeing now with these evangelicals and the child abuse, you're saying in the book, we actually grew up in a rape culture. Talk about growing up in a rape culture. So that's a powerful phrase, right? And sometimes people hear that and they'll say, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you saying here, Dr. McGuire? It sounds terrible. Um, and rape culture is, I, I mean, it's not a term I coined, right? It's been around for a couple of decades now, but it is a powerful phrase because it's a really important concept for people to think about and face. And what it's saying is, just like we talked about with the continuum of harm, a rape culture is not a culture that outwardly accepts or condones rape or any kind of sexual violence. It is a culture that has subliminally put in place these expectations, these scripts, right? With like token compliance and non-compliance, token resistance, that this is okay, or this is funny, or this isn't that bad, or all these different narratives. And when a culture has that as, as ingrained in it, then it's also a culture that by default will allow things like rape, like harassment, like stalking, et cetera, to take place. And, and for people to turn that eye and say, oh, you know, I don't really see this. This isn't that big of a deal. Um, or to outright blame the victim. Well, you know, it's their fault, what they were doing, how they were acting. They're so crazy. Or, you know, they, um, <clears throat> they have this history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's what rape culture is. And so the ideal is if we understand what that is, that's the first step. We first have to really get that piece if we want to be moving to a consent culture, right? If we want to shift that, we first have to say, what is the problem we're looking at? And what would the opposite of this look like in action? When you teach to uh, young people, do you get a different kind of reception about consent culture from females than males? Yes. Um, I think the biggest difference is that for women and people assigned female at birth, non-binary folks, trans folks, et cetera, um, but people within that, that experience, it is 
that they believe it. That if you say these things, this is a problem. This is prevalent. People are facing this kind of violence um, and and harm and trauma all the time. They're like, yeah, that's that's real. Like I think about this all the time. Either I've experienced it or my friends have, my family members have, right? I see it all around me. For a lot of people assigned male at birth, the reaction is oftentimes, well, you know, are you being hyperbolic? Are you blowing this out of proportion? Maybe it's not that bad, right? Maybe it's not this level of danger. And maybe I don't have to think about this this much. Um, and so I think that's that's the biggest kind of gap. And that's why it can be really good to have cohorts of students who are learning together from different genders and different sexual orientations and different races and ethnicities and age groups, right? Because you, then they hear from each other. Yeah, you don't get this maybe. Like maybe in your experience, this isn't a prevalent problem, but maybe you're limited by your experience. And if you heard how I have to navigate the world, you would have a different understanding. The evangelical groups that you grew up in, if I understand their teaching, they're teaching no sex before marriage and sex is, is okay with between a couple who are married, a heterosexual couple who are married. So how do they relate to what you're talking about consent? Because I'm thinking they could be looking at Dr. Laura McGuire and saying, consent? She's nuts. There's no such a thing as consent. We're saying no, period. There's no consent. Consent implies that there's a possibility of saying yes. So why is she teaching us about consent when it's pretty simple? No is no. And until you're married to a person of the opposite sex, it's all no. And then even when you're married to that person of the opposite sex, sex is for procreation and that's it. So, yes, I do get this a lot. And, um, you know, for your listeners to know, right, that I'm, I'm in seminary now. So I'm actually going for my Master's of Divinity to to talk about these things in faith communities specifically. And for years, you know, when I like so when I worked at that university in Texas, one of the first things I did at, when I got that job was I started connecting to the local student Baptist organization and the local student Catholic organization because. I knew that they probably did not feel connected to the messages that the university had been saying before me about consent. And when I talked to the students, that's exactly what they said. They said, this is not about us. We have nothing to do with these consent talks because we don't have sex. We're, this is against our religion. And so it's so important to address this. Number one, again, consent is not just about sex, right? It's about all, any Two people that are communicating with each other or more people that are talking to each other in any way, there has to be consent. So are you talking to somebody? Are you asking to text them? Are you asking, you know, if they'd like to spend time with you? If you're pressuring them, if you're manipulating them, if you're not being clear about your intentions, that's a lack of consent. Consent has to be part of all of those steps. So whether you say, I want to, I want to save sex for marriage or not, doesn't matter. Consent is still part of it. Also, and this is, I think, one of the most overlooked aspects of this conversation in faith communities, marital rape is a very real thing. 
And it didn't become federally illegal until the early 1990s. This is terrifying, right? Um, as a culture, we have condoned and accepted marital rape for most of our history. And so for faith communities that are saying, well, sex is for marriage, great. So you're talking about consent with the couples who are engaged? No. You know, are you talking about it with couples who've been married for years and maybe haven't got this education before? No. Well, that's a huge problem. That's a huge, huge problem, right? So it doesn't matter when you're going to have sex or if you're ever going to have sex or any of those things. Consent is integral to human relationships. And I think that's that's one of the biggest areas we still have to move into with, again, all different kinds of faith spaces. Do you have data on to what extent these folks who are being taught to not have sex are following that direction? Do we know, are they actually not having sex or are they sinning and, and feeling like they're sinning, but they're still sinning because sex is such a strong drive, particularly when you're in your teens and early twenties because of the physiology? Right, I mean, that's an important aspect too, right? Even if they're saying this is part of my spiritual practice, Oftentimes it's not being acted that way, right? They're, they're still going to be human beings and um, engage in physical activities. So statistically we know, yeah, it's, it's actually really rare that people are not having sex at all before they get married. Um, and, that, and that does vary across different religions and different denominations. Um, but it's still, it's like the percentage of people who would profess that belief versus the people who are falling through on it is quite large. Um, we know, I think it's about 98% of couples in the United States have premarital sex, right? So that's religious and non-religious. That's just everybody. Um, so exactly. Even if someone says, well, I don't really want to be doing this. If they are doing it at all, <laughs> they are either doing it consensually and safely and emotionally safely, or they are creating harm and they are assaulting someone or they're manipulating them or they're, you know, abusing them in some other way. And so, again, this has to be part of every young person from children learning about communicating with playmates, about, you know, compromise and sharing to teens who are getting into the dating world, whether they think they're going to have sex or not, to adults and even seniors. We're seeing a lot of consent issues with seniors in nursing homes, right? That this was not something they grew up with and they have to get this education too. It is for everybody. You know, I hesitate to say something that might sound like being critical of religious beliefs, but listening to that data that you just put forth that 98% of the couples of all religions and all faiths and all groups uh, are having uh, premarital sex, what that says to me is that we're creating anxiety and depression. And I will tell you how I see that. We have a concept in, in sociology and psychology called sociocultural lag. Lag means when the laws of the land in this case, the laws of the religion, are doing something that a significant percentage of the population are not doing. So, for example, when we try to get people to drive 55 miles an hour on superhighways in this country, 
in order to reduce the amount of gasoline used, it didn't work. People kept driving 70 miles an hour. So what happened was you created scoff laws because all those people who were driving over 55 were not obeying the laws. That's called a scoff law. And in the world of, uh, of psychedelic uh, medicine, which is one of my great interests, we've created tens of millions of criminals because we have tens of millions of people in the United States or more who are smoking marijuana and who have used LSD and have used MDMA and other uh, psychedelic substances. A very high percentage, very high, well into the 90s of these people are good citizens who pay their taxes, they obey all the other laws, they raise their kids good, they work, they do everything to be a good citizen, and they smoke marijuana instead of drinking alcohol. But as soon as they smoke that marijuana, they're a criminal, they're, they're out, or a scoff law, they're outside the law. So what we have done is instilled anxiety and depression in these people because a good citizen is aware when they're doing something illegal and it bothers them a bit. Or they're scared that they'll get stopped. If they get stopped for a broken taillight, they could go to jail because there's marijuana in the car or various other reasons. And here you're saying the same thing is true with regard to these religious beliefs and creating sinners. Because if 98% of the people who get married have had premarital sex, that means 98% of the Baptists who have been taught not to have sex are having premarital sex. That means they're sinning. They don't feel good about sinning. They're good people. They're nice people. They, they, they want to be part of the religion. They don't want to be seen as sinners. But now in the back of their minds, they've got, oh, every time I have sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, I'm a sinner. That's, that's very serious. That is very serious. No, it is. It is. And what's fascinating also, again, from the sexology side where I'm at, is we see this even in physical issues that they have after they get married. Oh. So even when, even when they've been told, okay, you're safe, this is it, you're not going to sit anymore, super high rates of erectile dysfunction and vaginismus, particularly for people with vaginas, right? That they have been told for so long that sex is terrifying, it's bad, they're gonna you know, be in hellfire for eternity, that when they are given permission to have sex, their bodies don't catch up to it. Yes. And that is that they don't, their muscles contract out of, out of trauma. So they have painful intercourse, they can't have intercourse and all these other issues, right, are coming up for them and they're like, but I'm allowed to do this now. Right, but you've been traumatized. If you are told that something is so bad and so shameful and so evil, your body's not going to just turn that off. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's it's tricky, right? Because we want people to be able to follow whatever practice is right for them. And that's a part of consent culture, too, is that if someone says this isn't right for me or <coughs> or if they want to cover up or if they want to, um, you know, not have any physical contact with their partner before marriage. That is all important and okay, and we affirm that. Yes. But we also have to look at, again, what is the messaging we have around these things and what kind of damage is it causing? And be honest about that. 
So it is, it's a very tricky balance, um, but I think we can find it. I think that all people can, no matter, no matter their religious framework or social framework or anything, they can find a place in consent culture where, again, their needs and rights and autonomy is fully honored. Talk to us about the relationship between consent culture, which you're advocating, and entitlement boundaries and personal agency? One, entitlement is a huge problem when it comes to dismantling rape culture. Because so much of the violence we see in the world is based on a sense of privilege and entitlement, right? That somebody thinks they have the right to someone else's body. And that can be because of their gender, that can be because of race, that can be because they're married to them, right? I I own you now, or you don't really have the right to say no to me. And so we have to address that and talk about, again, where do those messages show up? How do they manifest? How do we address them? Boundaries really is like the opposite of that, right? which is that we have to teach people to have how to have boundaries. Again, for a lot of people assigned female at birth, boundaries, I have to be nice. I can't say no. I have to be kind. I have to make this person like me. Or, you know, if I say, hey, that was okay last week, but I, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that right now. Oh, you know, I'm going to make them upset. I can't make someone upset, right? So we have to teach people how to have boundaries We also have to teach them how to respect each other's, right? That if someone's boundary isn't your favorite or not what you would prefer, guess what? You don't get an opinion. It's their body. It's their life, right? You just have to respect that they're saying, "Eh, this doesn't work for me. Agency, when we talk about creating consent culture, we talk about two main concepts that we find a lot in the research, which is sexual agency and sexual subjectivity which boils down to, I have a right to my own experience. I have a right to figuring out what works for me and what doesn't. I have a right to pleasure. I have a right to physical and emotional peace. I have a right to go back and and renegotiate and redecide what those boundaries are, right? And when we give that to young people, they give that to each other. And again, we, we then end up creating couples and families and communities and entire societies that believe that each person has a right to their own autonomy and their own safety and respect. And that's, again, really how we get to totally changing a paradigm. How do entitlement and boundaries and personal agency relate to the concept you talk about called childism? So childism is, you know, one of the isms, like we talk about sexism, racism, um, but that is not talked about as often. And childism is the idea that children, people under the age of 18, do not have the same rights, do not have the same needs as someone over the age of 18, right? Which, if we think about it, is super prevalent in our culture, right? We don't let children say no in the way we let adults say no. If a teenager experiences sexual harassment at school from a peer, we say, eh, kids are resilient. That's just how kids are. If an adult did that to another adult, 
you know, they would lose their job. They would be kicked out of their community, et cetera. So um, that's one of the key pieces is we also have to say this is not just when you turn 18 that you get these rights to consent and agency and autonomy. This is your entire life, you know, and it's really fascinating because like whether we're talking about what's going on in the news with the evangelical community, what happened with the uh, Catholic Church, um, even what we're seeing with uh, a number of pediatricians, right, who've been charged with sexual abuse for um, treating children, patients, but treating them in an abusive way. All of those are situations where kids were told you don't have a right to say no. Because you're a kid and I'm an adult in a powerful position with a powerful title and, you know, your voice is null and void. And so that's that's why this is so important. It doesn't matter who the person is, what age they are. We all have those same rights. I can hear parents listening to this and saying, well, is she saying that if I tell my child to go to bed at eight o'clock and not watch television, the child has a right to say no I'm going to stay up and watch television and come up with like 48 other examples of stuff like that, which sort of makes the boundaries uh, a little difficult to, to, to understand, doesn't it? Right. Exactly. A lot of parents kind of make that jump, right? Oh, this means I don't have any rules or I can't say no to anything. No, of course not, right? Because like we just talked about, it's about everyone gets to have boundaries. Everyone gets like, if it's your home, you can say, I don't want the TV on after this time. It's my home. This is my boundary. (laughs) And this is what we're going to do, right? And it's for your well-being. I I can say, I know you need to get your schoolwork done or I know you need to take a bath, et cetera. But again, what is not yours to say you have control over? Well, one big example is that child's body, right? So you don't get to say to them, you know, um, even even where we used to tell people, we used to tell children, well, the only people who can touch you here are your parents or a doctor. Again, statistically, the most likely person to sexually abuse a child is a family member. Um, and then it comes down to authority figures in that child's life, like physicians, like teachers. So instead of saying, <clears throat> Well, if somebody with this title wants to touch you there, you just have to agree. Even in those situations, we say, you can say no. You can always say no. You can always say, I'm not comfortable. You can always say, even if the person says, well, this is for your own good, or I'm allowed to do this because I'm in this role. That's not true. You can always say, no, this is not okay with me. That's really important. You know, I, you're talking about childism. Reminds me of a slogan that was in my family as I was growing up, and it was probably the slogan that I hated the most, and it was, children should be seen and not heard. Now, that's an ultimate example of childism, isn't it? It's a way of saying, (laughs) you got to keep your mouth shut all the time. Of course, for a person like myself who was born talking, it was a pretty hard (laughs) pill to swallow. (laughs) So... How does one create healthy boundaries? Are there some guidelines for creating healthy boundaries? Yes, absolutely. I think, again, one is always start with yourself, right? And so often, whether I'm training a corporation or I'm talking to parents, 
they'll say, well, I'm supposed to be teaching my children this first. I'm supposed to be teaching my team members this first, right? And you have to say, no, no, first you have to work on yourself. First you have to say, well, what are my beliefs about boundaries, right? How, do I model them? Do I follow through with them? Do I, do I have boundaries, right? Or is this something I just say to other people? And then when you have that in place, it's about saying, you know, now this is what I want you to do too, right? I say no to things. I want you to be able to say no to things. Here's what I'm okay with. Here's what I'm not okay with. I want you to be able to communicate the same thing, right? And and that's, you know, again, we normalize that. We talk about that openly. Things change. The world changes. But it really starts with yourself. You can't be giving that to others if you're not doing it on your own. You talk in your book about tools for creating conversations. And what I hear in a thread throughout this interview is the importance, the imperative, if you will, of communication. It's about talking to one another. It's about talking to the children. It's about couples talking to one another, keeping the conversation going in order to be able to find out what's okay and what's not okay. Am I, am I going too far? Do you want me to stop? Is there a boundary here? Communication. So talk to us about what you call conversation tools. Yes. Communication is really, it's the crux of all relationship, right? Um, we know that one of the main reasons couples end relationships and marriages even is lack of communication, right? Consent comes down to communication. When I when I do corporate work, right? What, what do corporations say their biggest problem is communication. <laughs> this is the thing, right, that we have to address. And so, you know, some of the examples I give in the book are things to start talking about, particularly for parents and kids and teachers and students. How do you how do you even ask some of these things? Right. Ask particularly the student or child. What do you think about this? What do you see in the media? What are some messages you've received about consent or not? Right. Um, maybe you watch <clears throat> even like a sitcom together, a movie, or you listen to a song and say, well, what do you think the message is between these characters? Are they really respecting each other? Do they have boundaries? Do they have good communication? Why or why not? Right. And using all of those things as these launching points to say, okay, if it's not what we want, what would the alternative be? What would we advise these characters or these, you know, uh, people in a song or whatnot? And then if it is good, well, how do we amplify that? How do we make that more acceptable? Uh, what might be things that people have fear around when it comes down to having boundaries or effective communication, right? And I think sometimes people hear that and they say, oh, my, my child, my students would not have any idea what to say or um, they wouldn't really know about these things. But you would be surprised. You know, children and teens are so observant. They're so smart, especially in today's world. And so engaging with them in these discussions is, is really fruitful. Now, you have a whole section in your book about how to talk to seven-year-olds about consent. Is that about the starting age, Laura, or does consent information begin even earlier than that? 
So honestly, when people say, when do I start talking about consent with my kids? I say, yes, as soon as they can understand the word no, which is around 18 months old, right? And obviously you're not talking to them about sexual consent, but again, that's why it's so important that we clarify consent is not about sex. It's about people communicating no matter what. And so with a, a, a young child, right, again, the example of even playing with a friend, right? Does your friend want to play hide and go seek or do they want to play tag? Well, they said they wanted to play tag, but then you begged them and begged them and you said you wouldn't be their friend if they didn't agree to play hide and go seek with you. And so then they said yes. But did they really say yes or did they feel pressure? Did they feel scared to say no? Right. So that's a consent lesson right there. Um, Again, with children, animals, does the dog want to be petted? Right. The dog's backing away from you when you approached it. That cat, you know, hissed when you tried to go and pet its fur. Okay, so it's telling you it has a boundary. It's telling you I don't want to be touched right now. So let's respect that. Let's not try to convince it (laughs) that it should engage with us. Right. Those are consent conversations at an age appropriate level. Sex is never mentioned. It doesn't need to be at all. Right. But those building blocks are still being put in place of understanding verbal and nonverbal cues, understanding, again, authentic communication, how we sometimes manipulate people to get what we want and how to address that. So when they grow up and they're in any more intense, more intimate situation, that foundation's already there. You said something that I want to underline in red, which is that teaching a young person about consent and about boundaries doesn't have to be about sex. It can be way before even any discussion of sex because boundaries and consent relate to all kinds of things in our world. And that's what you're saying, isn't it? It, so part of it, it, it relates to sex a great deal, but part of it just you know relates to everyday life. In your book, you then go on to to get what I consider to be political. You talk about, and importantly so, you talk about colonialization of consent and consent. So please talk about that. So I think another aspect of the conversation about consent that often gets left out is how history plays into all of this, right? And that if we're saying, well, we want a current reality where everybody's boundaries are honored and people can say no and they're respected, we have to address that historically that has not been the case, not just on the broad sense, but especially for marginalized and oppressed groups of people, right? There are entire communities of people that for hundreds of years in the United States did not have the ability to consent to anything, right? Their their ability to have autonomy, to have agency was completely denied them in every single round. Such as women. Such as women, such as people of color, right? Such as people with disabilities, on and on and on. So if we don't talk about that, if we don't talk about that reality, we're not actually going to change the culture, right? Because those issues are still going to be embedded in the way that we think and the way we communicate and the way that we look at victims and their stories, et cetera. 
And so then the work becomes to decolonize that, to say, well, what part of this is colonization, right? What part of this is the way that overtaking people, controlling people, manipulating them on a large global scale has become the way that we look at each other, the way that we think of humanity. And then how do we address that, right? How do we address that in our language, in again, our, the humor we have, or the songs that we sing, or the messages we convey in the media? And only after we do that can we address the present. You talk about a concept called homogeneous perspectives on sex and how those homogeneous perspectives uh, deter us, how they create problems. Let's hear about that. So when, right, when we're talking about, again, that like singular perspective, right, we, we end up missing oftentimes the majority of people's lived experiences, right? We say, oh yeah, everybody goes through this, or everyone looks at this this way, or everyone experiences sexuality in, in this manner. And that's not true, right? And especially if we are in communities where we become an echo chamber and we're all saying to each other, yeah, yeah, this is just the way things are. This is just how, how people live or this is just the common experience. And we leave out all the people around us. Then um, again, that becomes part of really denying people their rights, denying their reality and failing to address the issues that they're experiencing. Is a homogeneous perspective a way of seeing all people the way you're seeing one person? Is that part of what you're wanting to teach us? Yes, right. So, um, and that can be oftentimes like the first person experience, right? So if I say, for example, you know, uh, I went to this concert and uh, it was so hard to get a taxi home. So I just walked home. like. I don't know why this person over here was complaining about getting a ride and the prices because I just walked home. It wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it was kind of dark out, but it was fine, right? That's my singular perspective. But going back to that example. So if I say that is that is just the lived experience, right, of needing to navigate getting home late at night. I'm leaving out all of the people who don't have that privilege, right? That's often something, again, maybe a male person will say, oh yeah, it's no no big deal. Um, and again, this bleeds into the way that we see sexuality, that we see um, communication, that we see, we often have this perspective of, well, if I'm experiencing this, if I have this level of privilege, or if these are my experiences, then that is true for every single person. And, and again, what that does is it really denies the majority of people and their realities and the barriers that they're having to navigate that we might not. Is an example of a homogeneous perspective, like seeing the color pink as being a feminine color, is that an example of it? You know, seeing stereotypes as this is what a woman does, this is what a man does, and so we get these sort of gender-oriented uh, beliefs and gender-oriented behaviors that follow from those beliefs. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So we we can say, right? All you know, all women, <clears throat> they're they're really attracted to people who are protector providers, 
or going back to the example of the bathing suit at the very beginning, right? Oh, all boys, they're just so visually stimulated. Girls aren't, but boys are, right? And of course, people of all genders can be visually stimulated or not, where they can want someone with certain personality attributes or not, right? We are individuals. And so again, we do not want to be stereotyping each other, even ourselves, right? Sometimes people will do that to themselves and say, oh yes, as a man, as a woman, as a non-binary person, as a trans person, as a, a person born in the 80s, whatever, right? We all think like this. We all experience this. And, and that's just not true. So that this homogeneous perspective is related to binary, isn't it? Yes. And, and you're, right. So uh, you're advocating that we break down this binary. So advocate for us. Well, I think, yes, our binary way of thinking, thinking that there are two options for everything in life, right? For any of these identities and that there's not a huge swath of experiences in between these dichotomies is, is really harmful, right? Again, it puts people in little tiny boxes where they often don't fit. And it even just limits the way that we think about humanity and our human experiences, And so the more that we can think outside of that, the more we can think expansively around how people navigate the world and how we're intersectional, right? That I'm not just one thing. I'm I'm on a continuum with anything, with any identity. And then I'm all these other identities and layering them together. You get the unique experience that is me or the unique experience that is you. But If you say, no, you check this box, so you have to think this way or believe this or have this experience, then you're not going to see me authentically. And I'm not going to have the voice that I need to have in any realm. What what do you mean when you talk about the paradox of gender? So, right, gender, gender stereotypings, gender bias is a huge issue within um, rape culture. And dismantling that is key to consent culture, right? Because what we were just talking about of putting people in little boxes, stereotyping them often comes with these assumptions about sexual experience, about ability to communicate, about um, being able to live authentically. And if we don't discuss that, Right. If we don't discuss how we're conditioned by these norms and expectations, then again, we don't get to the root of that continuum of harm and how they're interconnected. So just even little things like the man takes out the garbage and the woman does the dishes. That's those are those are stereotypes. Those are gender biases, aren't they? We have a lot of we have an awful lot of reevaluating to do, Laura. Wow! How tell, talk to us about gender in the bedroom, and what happens? So you know, and this is very much connected to what we talked about with token resistance and token compliance. Um, many people socialized as female have the belief and have experience where they can't really say what they want or don't want, where. <clears throat> What we call um, in sexology, the orgasm gap exists, right? Where even when people are in loving, committed relationships and they think we're talking, we know each other, we understand what each other likes and doesn't like. So often people with vulva vaginas don't 
don't have orgasms at the rate of their partners with penises because the whole way that sex is framed and prioritized focuses on the partner with the penis's orgasm and making sure that they're receiving pleasure. So all of this, again, feeds into inequity, inequality, and into thinking less of different people based on their genitals or the way that they are, um, the, the place that they are located in this kind of galaxy of human identity and experience, right? And so that shows up in the bedroom, that shows up in the boardroom. We know that <clears throat> people who are socialized as female have a much harder time moving up in positions, being accepted as authority figures, being heard when they have an idea, right? It does that come down to the way, again, that we look at somebody who reports a crime or somebody who says, I'm uncomfortable with the way this person's talking to me? Yes, absolutely. These are all intertwined. So again, we have to look at, well, how am I communicating with my partner and how am I prioritizing their pleasure? And that will feed into how do I respect and respond to people so that the violence doesn't occur and that if it does occur, people are being heard and believed. It's, it's going to be quite a movement to free people up so that women, for example, who have been taught all their lives to be recalcitrant about sex and then are in a relationship that's relatively safe and they're supposed to become unbridled and let their, let their freak flag fly and, and let themselves be. But that's easy to say. But when you talk about a lifetime of enculturalization, saying, keep it down, don't, or else, or we'll slut shame you, or etc. And then all of a sudden, you're supposed to turn into a, a free person. You've got a lot of work ahead of you, Laura McGuire. Yes, yes. And fortunately, I, you know, I'm not alone in this work. There's so many amazing people in this space. And there's so many people who have gone before me, etc. But but yeah, no, it is it is a lot of work. And I think the hope there is that the more people who hear these messages, the more people who take up this mantle, right, and work with us and start going back to their schools and saying, you know what, can we please have just even a, a one-time speaker come out? Can Dr. McGuire just come out one time? Much less, <clears throat> can we hire them to look at our curriculum and develop something? Or can we you know, get this to be a consistent thing that's offered year after year across different grades, right? Those are the things that together we start really changing things because it has to be a collective effort. When I think about consent, I find myself wondering whether the word is inclusive enough to provide the safety that we're aiming for. And I want your opinion on whether or not it would be of merit to call it sober consent. Does the word sober add enough to make it worthwhile or is sobriety implicit in the word consent? And I raise that because as we well know, we have consent sober but then there's this issue of alcohol and what happens to people 
when they drink alcohol? And does no mean no? Yes, no always means no. But does yes mean yes when a person is inebriated? Does yes mean yes when a person is drunk? And what, what, what's your opinion on that? Is it worthwhile to expand this consent to calling it sober consent or is that not necessary? So, I mean, I would say it's not necessary in the sense of if you study anything about consent theory and consent culture ideas, that's integral to it, right? Is that people are sober. Um, and that's, of course, free from substances that are in their body at a level where they can't make decisions, right? That doesn't mean they've had one glass of wine, but if they keep drinking or they're drinking hard alcohol and they're at that level where they're buzzed, et cetera, um, no, then they're not able to make an informed decision and say yes, right? They might say it. They don't know what they're saying, Right. And so in, in that sense, we don't have to add the word onto it because it's ingrained in the concept. But I very much agree. I think that as far as educating young people and all people, right? Because again, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s often don't get this right either. Or they've heard the opposite. They grew up watching movies where a character would get another character drunk to have a chance with them, right? So everybody needs to hear that, that, right, a yes does not mean a yes if the person's pressured, if they're not mentally clear, um, if they're being manipulated, if they're not sure what they're agreeing to because the person hasn't really told them what they meant, right, for all those different reasons. We want it to be enthusiastic. It also has to be ongoing. So that's important for the sober conversation because I have had more than one student and more than one college parent tell me that the way they were going to get around this consent stuff, quote unquote, is that before they got somebody drunk, before they went out and partied with somebody, they would get them to sign an agreement <laughs> consenting to sex with them then. And Again, they're missing the entire point, right? That doesn't count because consent is ongoing. If they were sober when they said yes, that was a yes when they were sober. Now they're drunk. They can't go back and agree or not agree because they're not in a clear mental space. They're not, you know, um, able to make that decision. So there's no way for them to consent. It doesn't matter if they said in five hours, I'll still agree to this. It's it's not like that. It doesn't work that way. But it is shocking how many young adults and their parents think that that's appropriate. So consent is an existential act. From moment to mm -hmm. moment, you make your decision. It's not a blue sky where you sign on and for the next week, whenever you want something, the answer is yes. And, or, or, or for the rest of the evening, as you put it. And that sounds very important. Uh, that it, that consent is ongoing and you can take away consent at any time, correct? Exactly, exactly. And right, so whether that's even in the moment, right? There's no point where it's like, well, then they can't say no. Of course, they, like if you are in the middle of having sex and the person says, hold on, stop, something isn't working for yes. me. That's, that's it. it, it ended, the consent ended. They can't say, oh, well, it's too late now. It's never too late to say no. Um, 
And again, that goes into the marital rape conversation we were having earlier. If somebody says, I do, that doesn't mean yes to all sexual activity forever in every situation with that person. Yes. They're agreeing to be married to them in that moment, in that context, but that has nothing to do with agreeing to everything else. And a lot of people are taught that that is, that they don't have to consent once they're married or in a long-term relationship because it's assumed. And again, that is really dangerous and harmful. Yeah, this is the legacy of the years when women were chattel. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with. So what does the future look like? Give us a cup, a, a glimpse of how you see the future and how you would like to see the future. Oh, the future, I, I think, looks like, hopefully, again, people reading this kind of stuff. Um, I have a second book coming out in July for college campuses to do more work around this, too. And What's the name of that book? So that is called The Sexual Misconduct Guidebook, From Consent to Conduct for College Campuses. Thank you. And, um, you know, hopefully people read about this stuff, listen to these things and really start thinking about it again, doing that work first on themselves and saying, well, where do I have misconceptions about consent? Where do I, you know, doubt victims still? Where do I have bias and prejudice around these things? And then by doing that work, starting to talk to peers, to students, to children and saying, you know, we all have to address this. This is hard for a lot of people, but the more we learn, the more we know, the better we can do. And that that becomes something that every child receives throughout their lifetime, that these are conversations that are ongoing for them that they have support and resources for continuing to work through some of their questions or misgivings or confusion around it. And that we eventually get to a place where this is the cultural expectation, right? Where people aren't confused, where there aren't mixed messages, where it's a very clear messaging and it's all about consent. Um, that is my hope for the future. And, and I think it's promising. There's definitely work to do. And there's definitely still a lot of counter messages that are going around out there. But we're getting closer and closer to making this the expectation. I, that's a very hopeful perspective. And to the extent that we're successful on the microcosm with the individual people, could relate to how successful we are on the macrocosm because invading an individual person against consent is similar to invading a country against consent. It's all about invading another person's space and crossing their boundary without permission. And that's what you're teaching us. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been very uh, stimulating and educating, educational to be with you. Thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate this opportunity.